Hey everyone, jumping in real quick to tell you about something I'm personally very excited for. It's SIRS Furniture, S-I-R-R-S Furniture. Now, if you've been listening to our podcast for a long time, then you know about Sir. He was, we did the, the crossover with the uh, Before Sunset trilogy. He's been on a couple of our episodes. I've been on a couple of his. Um, he's a dear friend. And he happens to make, besides a fantastic podcast, beautiful, custom-made wood cutting boards of, of whatever flavor of wood you want in whatever kind of design you want. It's, it's beautiful, custom work. And with summertime coming up, I know that I'm going to be out barbecuing. I'm going to be out going to birthday parties. I'm going to be going to a couple of weddings. And it's sometimes hard to pick, you know, what to give somebody, uh, what to give a friend of mine. Sir's Furniture is your one-stop shop for cutting boards, charcuterie boards, coasters, anything that you can really think of that is handmade, handcrafted, and designed woodcraft. You've been using a small plastic board for years. You know you have. Or, you know, take a look in your kitchen at those dried out twigs that you call cutting boards. And go to sirsfurniture.com, S-I-R-R-S furniture.com slash N-Y-F-M and check out the wide selection of beautiful handcrafted wooden cutting boards that are on display there. Now, listen, let me tell you a little bit ago when Mike welcomed in his third child to the world, um, Jesse and I banded together and we we pitched in on, on one of the big Bertha, I think it's called the Martha of the, the cutting boards. It was big, it had a nice channel around the side and we put Mike's last name right in the middle and this board was gorgeous. I was upset that I didn't have Mike's last name so that I couldn't just keep it for myself. It was the single most beautiful cutting board I've ever seen. So that whether you love to cook, barbecue, or just need that perfect gift, Sir has what you need. So for 10% off, use our link, Sir's Furniture. That's S-I-R-R-S furniture.com slash N-Y-F M. That'll tell him that we sent you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. And I'm Jesse, and we are the dad fathers, and we're coming at you some birthday energy all over again. Birthdays again! Yay! Wait, who is it this time? Whose birthday is it this time? Uh, oh, it's Mike's. It's mine. Oh, it's so <laughs> early. I just had yours like 10 months ago. <laughs> oh, it's Vito's, guys. It's Vito's birthday. That's right! Birthday. It's Vito's birthday! <laughs> <laughs> My, my, I look forward to this this every every year every year. This is this is one of my favorite things in the world. Oh, I'm so excited! Uh, happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you. You thing you. Thank you. Yes. These are some of your favorite things. That is. It is. Here. This is. Cheers. There, cheers. Mm. There for the for the microphone. Oh, I guess here we can. Another another journey around the sun. Um, have we grown any wiser as we've grown older, Vito? Actually, yes. Oh, um, and I'd like to cover that in this episode. Okay. Yeah, great. Because I had I had uh, originally when I conceived of this, it was it looked a lot different. Um, so 
For this episode, we are doing The Thing from 1982, the John Carpenter classic, and then the prequel to that movie, which came out in 2011. Um, I had originally conceived of Called this. The Thing. It's also called The Thing. Really? <laughs> thing. And the poster is the same. The font's the same. I have both of them on Blu-ray. I could show you guys a side-by-side comparison. It, it looks the same. You cannot tell mm-hmm. from the spine which one is which. Uh, huh. Really bad marketing flaw. Um, originally, the idea for this episode was like a great example of practical effects and a great example of computer-generated effects. Because I remembered The Thing from 2011 as being pretty good. And I was like, why does this get so much hatred? But in my years as I've grown, I sat down to watch this. I was kind of excited to revisit it. I was like, man, I can't wait to be right about this. <laughs> I watched it. I was like, holy shit, this is bad. <laughs> this is really not good. Uh, I can't imagine why I ever thought this was good. Who was I? So yes, Mike, I have grown. You've grown. You've changed. I've changed. I've morphed. I've, wow. I've, You've taken in maybe some I've, other I've, things. I've absorbed a dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, you're really a dog. Can't, exactly. I do need to ask, like, when you first saw the thing 2011, was it like a four star movie for you? Four and a half star? It was a three and a half because I had so okay. much reverence for the thing. Um, okay. I'm I'm trying to think back as to what it was that I really liked about it, and I think it really came down to just the Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Egerton mm. aspect of this. I thought that they they were. It really, I still think they are really good in the movie. I just think that I overemphasized how good they were uh, before. <laughs> mm. It is not good enough to carry this thing. Um, but anyway, this <laughs> is mm. this is two thing movies, the original horror classic and its prequel. And for my birthday episode, I wanted to talk about the movie, the, the movie itself of the thing from 1982, one of my all time favorite movies. But I also wanted to talk about something I'm very passionate about, which is. Um, CGI versus practical effects. And I'd like to get into that in this episode. Um, and I hope, I hope that listeners have some, have some opinions on this too. Not, maybe not about these movies, but about some other things they've seen. Um, I mean, we could talk an alternate version of this episode could have been like any Jurassic world movie versus the original Jurassic park. Mm, right. Mm, yes. mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, that could have been almost the exact same thing. It actually would have been weirdly reminiscent of this episode because both the Jurassic park and the thing were shot by Dean Cundy. Um, oh, one of the master yeah. cinematographers. Yeah, that is fascinating. Or you could do like the original Star Wars versus like the prequels. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime that we have the sequel from for a movie from long ago, they seek to update it, you know, with current technology. And uh, it doesn't well, we'd have doesn't to really work dig out. back through Star Wars, then get back to when George Lucas had not touched it. And then yeah. we can talk yeah. about that. The original VHS. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. need to hunt down the VHS and then uh, then we'd be good. Exactly. Exactly. And then a VHS player. Um, I was at the uh, I was at the thrift store. Oh, sorry. Sidebar. I was at the thrift store today. Um, of course, you I were. saw an, an enormous amount of VHS players. So many VHS yeah. players. Do you know if they test those so, before they sell them, or do they just sell them? Well, first of all, I can't get over the fact that you're calling it a VHS player. It's a VCR. Um, <laughs> uh, that I actually made the same mistake, and a, my older brother like pounded me for it. So, um, okay. VCR, <laughs> yeah, he was like, yeah, as if I'd like made a crime against the '90s or something. But yeah, so just throwing <laughs> that right. out there. I mean, because I wasn't, I wasn't praising it for its video cassette recording capabilities, more about its playing capabilities. Uh, I was really focusing on there. You're making um, a distinction. Okay, I was. Hang on just a second. Um, 
I'm leaking blood from my nose. Oh. Um, here, oh. hang on just a second. Sorry. I think he's the thing. I, yeah. I am the thing. <laughs> I'm thinking out. Test the blood. <laughs> Test the blood. I'm a little too excited about the things. <laughs> so what, what is oh, this? Uh, oh, so that's, <laughs> that's just lemon like, juice. Oh. Um, <laughs> did you drink it? No. Oh. I've, been, I've been sitting here looking at this being like, Dan made so, a very small drink so, with like yellow ice cubes. I don't know what to think of this. Yeah, never never eat the yellow snow. It's um so we have the orange groves that have okay. lemon okay. trees okay. and I crush okay. them up. Oh my goodness. Or I juice I a bunch I and then I freeze them in ice cubes. Okay. Parkour. Use it for ice uh, or for lemonade. And okay, so you've been whiskey. It's a whiskey sour. It's a whiskey sour. That's what okay. Is. That makes sense. So if you add some whiskey, it'll be whiskey sour, not just lemon juice. Awesome. Uh, all right, you're right there. I'm good. I'm good. Um, Earlier, I punched him in the face. Yeah, oh, like, okay. a, like like a few years ago. Um, <laughs> still recovering. Um, I don't know. Should I just keep that in? <laughs> I guess so. We we tied it Why in not? with the thing. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, uh, wh- whatever. Where are we? Where are we at? Oh, one thing. We're, another reason we're doing the thing, right? Fortieth anniversary of the thing. Like that's a big reason that oh, this yeah. made sense to be done right now. Mm. And um, and yeah, Vito, you shared the the slash film cast with their interview of um, John Carpenter, and that was just awesome to listen to him actually talk about his movie. Yeah. Um, I love really it. Was, it was the it was the the big picture. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the big picture. Yeah, it's it's okay. But the uh, the what I love about that interview with John Carpenter is it exposes like he's he's such an unfussy guy, right? Like, there's a reason that his movies are so kind of lean and and simple. It's because he's a pretty lean, simple guy when he talks about stuff. He doesn't have a lot of room. Like Sean asked him, one of the questions he asked him was like, "Do you think?" Because the thing is, of course, a, a legendary bomb. And both critically and financially, like at the time, if you look at some of the headlines, people are like, is this the most hated film of all time? Mm. Um, people hated That's this wild. movie. Really? Yeah, it, it's had it know. has probably one of the furthest like 180 degree critical reevaluations in its lifetime. Yeah. And w- but one of the questions Sean asked uh, John Carpenter was like, if this movie had done well, do you think you'd have had a better career? And he said, um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was a real like whiff of a question <laughs> where he's like, I'm not really interested in hypotheticals. Like it just didn't do well, but I, I still am proud of my movie. I love that about him though. Or like how, how, how Sean points out, like, he's like, you know, your movies are pretty pessimistic. And Jar Carpenter's like, yeah, but I'm an optimist at heart. He goes, wait, whoa, how are you an optimist? Like you're the biggest cynic about cor- like pop culture that there, there maybe has been in the last 40 years. And he's like, Oh, I don't see it that way. I'm just telling stories. Like, <laughs> could you could you refresh my mind on what else John Car- Carpenter has done? Sure, he uh, he came out a big splash with uh, with Halloween. He is the the father of the Halloween franchise. Came up with Michael mm-hmm. Myers, The Shape, um, mm-hmm. but he's also done uh, The Fog, They Live. Um, I think I shouted it out on our end of the year episode as a, a hidden gem. Is uh, the thing is actually in a trilogy. It's called the Apocalypse Trilogy of three movies that are all inspired by Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft, the the famous horror writer, and mm-hmm. Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. Um, he's also done stuff like Vampires. He's done um, Oh, Big Trouble in Little China, which I which I just recently saw for the first time like a week ago. Um, he is he is the uh, Christine. Um, he is the '80s horror film director. So when you see stuff, you know, listeners, when you see stuff like Stranger Things, and you see the neon 
and the the uh, the fog and the synth music, all of that is John Carpenter. Every single frame of that is a John Carpenter thing because um, he is known as like a one-man team. He produces, he writes, he directs, he does his own music for things. Often he serves as his own editor. He is, he is a single creative force. And even now in his 80s, he is doing the music for the new Halloween movies that David Gordon Green really? has been producing. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. That's cool. They, they called him in to do the score because he did the score in the original Halloween. He came up with that really haunting theme, which again- I've never actually seen the original Halloween. It's so good. Can you believe that? It's so good. I know, for you, I do. Yeah. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an old horror movie. You didn't see it. I get it. <laughs> but it, that's a big favorite of mine. And actually, would you guys mind if I talked a little bit about my nostalgia for this thing? Yeah. No, yeah, I wouldn't mind. So this is, uh, the thing is also one of my dad's favorite movies. This is- one of the big movies that me and my dad watched together. And I remember being probably 15, 16 years old. And we'd seen some like fun, gross out sci-fi stuff. Like I think I've mentioned Tremors before that we'd watched. Uh, we'd also watched the Terminator, Terminator 2. But this one was really weird because we sat down to watch it. And you think about the Terminator, Terminator 2, Tremors, like these are fun kinds of movies. They're a little schlocky, like the first Terminator mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. And this is like, this is gross <laughs> and yeah. really intense uh, and very dark. Yeah. Um, I remember being so in love with this. I think we watched it in the dead of winter in Wyoming. So okay. there was like a blizzard outside. <laughs> I had a, I had a, a, a beautiful German shepherd at the time. And so the dog stuff really hit home as well. Oh, uh, yeah. And it, it, this this movie birthed my love for for practical effects like this with the combination of the Terminator, Tremors, and um, you know watching the original Night of the Living Dead with my dad too is is this is where that seed of love that people like the Duffer Brothers again for Stranger Things really had as well. This is a this is a big big deal movie for me and is one of my favorite movies to this day. And I can't help but think of my dad every time I sit down to watch this movie. It's like a it's weirdly like a blanket of comfort for me. <laughs> like it's gross and and nasty and mean and scary, but I'm still like, come here, you, you little thing, you. That's right. You can't trust anybody. Exactly. That makes me feel so safe. Exactly. <laughs> Dad was right. The world is full of bastards. Um, <laughs> we become things. So I've loved it. I've loved it for forever. And um, and my nostalgia for the thing 2011 was that I saw it once. I thought it was pretty good, and I watched it again. I know now. I know it's terrible. And now I have a Blu-ray copy of it. Nice. And I need to get rid of it somehow. <laughs> I don't think anybody's taking that off your hands. <laughs> no, it was really hard to get. <laughs> oh, no. It was hard the to blue, find a retailer. The, the Blu-ray like uh, manufacturer was like, someone wants the thing from 2011 on Blu-ray? They, they go to back to the this. warehouse like, Does anyone guys, have this? <laughs> guys, somebody wants it! <laughs> no, we burned all the copies out back. Like, we hate that movie. With the gas, they dug a hole, they, <laughs> they burned dug it. a hole in the snow and burned it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that, that's kind of my nostalgia, and that's kind of where I'm coming from in this move forward in this episode. I just want to ask you guys, like, like I don't know, um, Je- Jessenequa, Jesse. Where did you come at the thing in 1982 and the thing 2011 from it first? So I realized when I was watching the thing 1982 that I've never seen the thing 1982. I was thinking of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. Easy mistake to make. You know, yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen this movie before. Oh, this is very different. <laughs> this is very different. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, never seen it. So this, this is like a. Are, are, are you referring to the invasion of the body snatchers from the fifties or the seventies? Definitely Donald Sutherland. Like I think I've seen parts of the seventies and then definitely the fifties. Okay. Um, but I, I still thought that I actually thought this was going to be a black and white movie for some reason. Okay. Um, so yeah, I really did envision this as a 1950s invasion of the body snatchers. So never seen it. Uh, coming out this like completely, completely fresh. Same thing with the thing 2011. Saw the thing 2011 after after the 1982. And... Oh thank God! Oh thank God! Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I knew better because I because I was sitting there wondering like this doesn't look familiar. Like maybe I need to watch this first just in case. And I'm, it was the best decision I've, I've made all week for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I like kind of liked it, but then after watching the thing 2011, I ended up really liking the original thing because <laughs> uh, the thing, I think the thing 2011, there was so much that I, that I didn't like. It's like, Oh, you know, the thing 1982, they did a lot of really cool things there. There's a lot <laughs> of really cool things. And then I was able to appreciate it more because of the absence of greatness that I found in the thing 2011. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Nice. I actually just to just to add on to onto your point too is I remember the first time I saw the thing 1982, I was I think I was a little um I was left pretty cold by the ending. Hmm. So I didn't love it at first. It definitely was one that had to grow. So I I also had the same kind of reaction where like this thing had to morph inside of me before it I exploded in thing glory. Things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I oh. definitely think if I was 15, 16 and I saw the original thing, it would have probably messed me up quite a bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> just the grotesque grotesqueness of it. Um, I think one of the most violent movies I saw at that age was like the first Kill Bill. And I thought it was, and it is insanely violent, um, but I was not used to seeing that kind of like just here's the violence. It's not, you know, it's not a shadow of the violence. It's not turning away at the last second. It's just there. So this, I definitely think that at a younger age, this would have probably scarred me um, to a certain extent, but I didn't see the original thing until I think it was four or five years ago. Um, I had heard so much about it. I had, you know, listened to, to podcasters talk about it and, you know, YouTube videos that would, do deep dives into it. And I was like, I just need to, to dive in and like experience this. Um, so I, I watched it four or five years ago and I, I had mixed feelings about it. I definitely, I was still kind of like hit by the, the grossness of it. It, it's definitely like, that's a huge part of the movie, right? Is how gross is this monster that it's trying to gross you out. And, um, it continues to gross me out. Like every time I, I just watched it for, I think the third time this last week and it, yeah, every scene just grossed me out. And, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that that'll ever go away or, and like that kind of speaks to how gross it is that it's not one that you're like, Oh, I know what's coming. It's still mm-hmm. like grosser than you remember. It was, you know, from the last time you saw it. So that, that was always kind of, um, like taking away a little bit from my enjoyment of it. I love, obviously I love Kurt Russell and I love the performances and the, the drama and you know, the, the setting of it is awesome. And it's like a play where every character is kind of equally important. And I love that about it. And there's so much incredibly great eighties dialogue that I, I absolutely love. 
Like when um, the, like when the thing roars at Kurt Russell and he just goes, "Ah, oh, f- you too." <laughs> that was great. <laughs> oh yeah, or when the head's crawling away and he's like, "You gotta be kidding me!" <laughs> Love it. Or um, the guy, the guy just wants to be untied from the from the couch. <laughs> You're gonna leave me tied to this couch all winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had not watched the what I thought was a remake. So that was something that, that honestly, I, d- I will never know how much this impacted my watching of the 2011 one, but I had been told it was a remake. And so I went into it just like, okay, let's see what they did the same. Let's see what they did different. And it starts off right with the Norwegians. And I'm like, Oh, this is kind of a cool, they're showing a little bit more what happened with the Norwegians. <laughs> and then like the whole movie was, with the Norwegians, but there were Americans in it. So I was like, they're kind of like combining the two camps, (laughs) which is cool. Like I was down for it. I'm like, this is okay. This is a cool twist on it. And then like, it actually wasn't until the thing was doing the, the merge with the other guy and the two faces were joining. And I was like, this, this is setting up for the next one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And, I'm not going to lie. I actually, once I realized that that, it was a prequel, I kind of dug it. I was like, (laughs) this is actually cool. This is a very, like a very cool way of doing a, like kind of homage to the original is to set it up this way to kind of explain everything that they saw in the Norwegian camp. Um, It's it's like whatever, whatever thing fan wanted, you know, it's like whatever Star Wars fan wanted. Like how did Han, why is Han's name solo? You know, and yeah. I was just so happy when I finally got that answer. Oh, yeah. Being okay. <laughs> I mean, you're being sarcastic. I know, I know. But but I do think that there's like a place for that. I think like this director of The Thing 2011, he clearly adores John Carpenter's The Thing. Like, yeah. like the, he loves it. He's not just like, I think this was, I don't know. I, I like to think this was before the time of the cheap fan service. Like, I, I understand it could be taken that way. I I felt like it was a genuine effort to pay to pay homage to that to the movie. Um, but anyways, so I watched the 2011 one, and once I realized it was a prequel, I I kind of loved it, and I was like, yeah, there are there are plenty of things I don't like about this. Definitely, the CGI was a huge miss for them, and they actually I, I found out that they actually did a lot of the stuff practically. And just thought that it looked too 80s, which is so weird to me that, <laughs> you, like, why would you not think that that was a good thing if you were trying to do a kind of semi-remake slash they prequel? both? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's wow. videos of the 2011 shots with practical effects, and it looks great. It looks so good. And then they layered over with CGI. It was an afterthought by the studios. Mm. And um, such a bummer. Yeah, like definitely look into it. I I would have liked this a lot more. (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody would have because like, who are they actually pleasing? It's it's the people that love the original. So I I like the studios like, let's mess with this prequel to a movie that's like 30 years old. And the budget for this movie is only 38 million. Let's mess with it. Hmm. Let's touch it. And then, of course, they scare it to a box office of thirty one point five million (laughs) dollars. Jeez. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike, where are you coming at this from? 
So I did not remember this when I started watching it, but as soon as it started, I was like, I have seen this movie before. Nice. And there was this weird, like, like period um, in uh, my life when I was like 15 or something with my mom and my sister where we started watching some old movies and my mom was like, you know what we should watch? We should watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And we did. It was awesome. Um, it was... What was that? The 50s the one? The 50s one. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. Um, and it blew my mind. We watched a few other like creepy movies and she's like, you know, they made like a remake of this sometime in the 70s or the 80s called The Thing. We should watch that too. I remember really loving it is what my mom said. And so we watched this movie and it blew my mind that my mom had ever watched this movie and liked it as well. Not just watched it, but liked it. And at the end of it, I just like, like it, it blew my mind. It was incredible. I was like, holy shit. Like, this is a movie. Like you can make things like this. And it did again when I watched it recently. You know, one of those movies where you're like, I cannot believe that someone could make this. Like, like this is incredible. What an amazing thing. But mostly my takeaway was sort of like, I looked at my mom with like new eyes. Like, who is this You're person? so cool. She's the, she's the one who has morphed into something new. You know, by, by our watching of it. Um, yeah, that, that's my, that's my memory. I remember just like being blown away. And my sister, this was like the movie that stopped that whole thing. She was like, I'm not watching anything like this ever again in my life. Um, and my mom was like, Oh, okay. It's kind of sad. Yeah. So, end of an era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's my my uh, nostal- my only nostalgia for the thing. I didn't watch the thing 2011 until this week. Um, it was fine. I didn't hate it. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting or whatever. And like you said, Dana, I was like weighing in my mind. You know, like I I didn't realize it was a prequel. Um, just like you, and uh, I realized it a little bit earlier. I think, but. I was weighing like the whole time, like, is this just fan service? Is this, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean five or whatever, when we find out how Jack Sparrow got his hat and shit. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think you're right. I think it was like, this is, this is someone who loves the movie. Um, the original movie was like, Oh, let's make, let's see what happened beforehand. And it gets a little out of hand. Um, which you know, but by the time, maybe is something we could learn from by the time we got Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Egerton, sprinting along the top of the alien ship yeah. as it starts to turn on. I was oh. like, all right, we have officially, yeah. we're in the weeds here. Yeah, like, what are yes. we doing? <laughs> like, everyone's supposed to die. Like, that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take I, out I was the wondering whole the whole time, like, who, yeah. who, like, is it going to be Mary, like, is it going to end up that Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Egerton are, like, the guys in the, exactly. in the helicopter? And, like, so is the end of, of their story just blowing up? Right. By mistake, right? Like that's a really bummer ending. And so instead, they like they they, they choose. But it seems like this is they choose the no balls approach, yeah. and they're like, "We'll just close on her living." Yeah, she probably didn't live past that. But we're gonna close on just yeah. her and the other one, <laughs> the other snowplow. Yeah, she's victorious. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I think I think now is as good a time as any for me to say like what I didn't like about the 2011 that made me appreciate the first one more. Yeah. Sure. And, and one of the key parts was uh, the way the thing works, like the way the thing works in the in the 80s version is it's really slow to morph into something. So it's it's got like a huge weakness, which is a flaw in the film at the end because it suddenly doesn't. But they do that for like the ultimate climax, basically. And I can I can forgive a movie for breaking a rule for if you're going to do something cool like that. Um, but 
the whole time the thing just wants to get in a one-on-one situation because it's kind of weak and it can't do that much. Um, and it's going to be killed or burned if it's ever in a huge crowd. Whereas the thing 2011, it's like, I don't know why you're not just slaughtering everybody around. Like you were yeah. uber powerful. Like, so I don't, powerful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Way too powerful. And that, and it made me realize that the presence of the thing in the eighties version was like very tense because, uh, cause you knew, cause it seems like it's trying to finagle a way to get into like a, a one-on-one situation with everybody. And that was, yeah. and that creates just such a stressful environment. And it's like, um, it's like such a gradual process for the thing to replicate the DNA. Like he needs, an, he needs a couple hours of uninterrupted gross time of like tubes <laughs> and, and tentacles, yeah. right? Um, for it to work. And that's what's so great about his, the, he's a very, very, very strong adversary because he can copy so perfectly. Um, but his weaknesses are fire and slow. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that means that he can actually be defeated. Yeah. At least like when he's not just a cell. Exactly. Like that's, and, but, yeah, like you said, Jesse, by the end of, of the thing, you're like, well, this is just a super, the thing 2011. Yeah. Like, this is just a super powered creature. Like, what are its motivations like when Joel Egerton, for causing horror? When, when there's when there's the break room scene, right? And the arms split off from the guy. Yeah. And they're super fast. Yeah. And then he like uses the ax and cuts one in half and it doesn't matter. And then the movie goes out of its way to show you how the two knit back together. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all. It should just be two pieces now. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a worm. Yeah. yeah. Like what are we do- like? It, it 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 should be even more dangerous because now it's so fast and it's so strong. It's like barreling through walls and shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm 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 taking yeah. over your point. I'm sorry. And, and then and then it becomes a creature movie. Like halfway through, when it's like the two headed thing chasing everybody, it's like oh well, we suddenly like threw the psychological aspect out the window, mm-hmm. which again was another great part of the 1980s. That's that's why I'm here. Like who is the thing? And they just kind of like eh. I guess I guess this guy is the thing. Like yeah, everybody knows. Um, and then the, the, the and, least the least likable person, he's definitely yeah. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then another like, I, I think this is probably a smaller thing, <laughs> but uh, in the eighties version, like everybody has something to them, like something small. Like there's a guy with roller skates who you know plays music really loud, and then there's you know Childs who's just like kind of angry and like kind of paranoid. And then there's a guy with the headphones, always talking to people. Um, and then there's a couple commander guys. There's a scientist. Like there's something small that ma- distinguishes every single character in the eighties version. Um, that makes you remember like, Oh, okay. That guy was at that place at that time with that, but that other guy with the beard. So like he could have been infected at that time. Whereas like in the 2011, everybody felt really flat for me and kind of like, merged into all the norwegians all were like the same you know yeah yeah like, they they kept pointing to peter and also it's funny his name is peter um <laughs> and then there's like lars and then other norwegian guy and i was like wait which one are you and then i i, I couldn't i couldn't remember who the one we're not supposed to like is and what i liked about yeah. so much about the original thing is that these guys they are making these choices that are that are pretty logical. Everyone has like their own point of view that they're all going for a hundred percent. Again, this clash of personalities. And the new one, they're just like, shut up, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. You're saying the most cogent, logical things in the world that should be blatantly obvious to anyone. How about you just shut up and we're gonna keep doing what we're doing? And then she's like, yeah. No, stop it. They're like, shut up though. 
Like, you're making sense. We didn't ask you to make sense, lady. It, it, it really got to the point where, where I was watching. It's like, you, these characters are blatantly stupid in a way that they were not stupid in the other thing. Absolutely. And, I, even, yeah. and even when they acted kind of dumb in the other thing, there's always that thing where you're going like, well, maybe they're a thing, right? Maybe that's why they're acting in this way. Yeah. You never knew. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I really liked. And that's what I also found uh, wanting in the prequel was there was just seemed to be a lot of dumb decisions made so that events in the plot would continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I definitely think the 20, I, like I did enjoy it up until the, the UFO, like I was still able to say like, Oh, I, I, this is very different and not as good, but I'm still enjoying what I'm seeing. But then when the UFO comes around, I think that's when I stopped caring. So was the only reason that they brought in the UFO, like them being down there, was to explain how it was uncovered from the ice? Was that what they so. were trying to explain? I guess. Because it like at the end it like tried to lift off and then it like blows up and like in the in the nineteen eighty two one they can see the entire spaceship right from the, yeah from the ground so it's like clearly something happened to clear out all of the snow and. I guess they couldn't think of a way that the Norwegians would have done that, like just uncovered it all or something. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like with well, shovels. And also to get the protagonist <laughs> away and not have to kill her off. You know, yeah. you know what, I, yeah. what I thought was really baffling is how they got the, the, the guy who we don't like, the real asshole of the group, Sander, right? Um, the, like the scientist that brings yeah. him down there? And I let, and the, he turns into a thing monster. And then the thing monster, instead of continuing to use his body... Um, it fully things out, right? Yeah. But it still so keeps his face <laughs> yeah. in the middle. But then the moment that Mary Elizabeth Winstead comes along, it stops using the, <laughs> the face. face. The face just goes, brah, like it's <laughs> on the mouth. It yeah. opens in like it, like a weird, like mouth, vagina, teeth thing. <laughs> that's like, like this. Huh. But I'm like, I'm still going like, why were you using the face? Like you clearly don't need eyes. Yeah. yeah. You you're seeing with something else, but you chose the thing out and keep the face in the middle. <laughs> like, is this like a weird um uh, fashion choice for you thing? <laughs> you yeah. didn't want to show up amongst your other things without a human face at your center? <laughs> I think there's a lot of like illogic, like it's like, oh well maybe it's a psychological like it just doesn't It was alone. <laughs> okay, okay, but there but there are there are things that you could that you can hmm. nitpick about the original, yeah. right? When when the doctor goes and to to shock him and gets his arms bitten off, that iconic scene, and then the thing yeah. comes out and it has a head. That's yeah. like a second head, and awesome. it is it's awesome, <laughs> right? We love it because it looks so good, like from a gross perspective. But it's still like, wait, the head's right there. Like, why were you making another head in his stomach? It's because it's because that thing is operating like the thing should, which is that it's not interested in being one corporeal form. It's interested in splitting off like a virus, right? Like, that's why the head immediately separates from the body to run away. That's why, like, the different parts are doing different things is because it's not really a unified whole. It's, it's, it's a bunch of little things right? That are working together in a big thing. And then each time it becomes discrete, that's a new thing. You know, that's the, so it, gotcha. it, it's splitting off into pieces like a cancer um, in ways that are not necessarily logical, but it, what is logical is that it's just trying to, to, to splinter off and get away, right? Let's save some part of me. 
as opposed to the other thing in the 2011, which is actually interested in becoming more unified all the time. It wants to get bigger for some reason, so as to be more noticeable, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's kind of like they took the concept from the 80s version at the very end when it does become a giant big mega thing, which to me does still like break the rules for how the thing had been operating up to that point. But again, I forgive it because I think that's kind of a big cool scene. I want, I want you to finish your point, but I have a question about movie. That. They make that the entire movie in 2011. It's like, it's always able to combine, always able to be bigger. I think the yeah. reasoning behind why the thing becomes a mega thing at the end of the 1982 movie is because it knows now that it can't sneak around. Like, it knows that it's done sneaking. The time for hiding is over. There's no possible way it can bamboozle anyone in this circumstance. And so it has to, it, it feels like it has to go big and go loud. It feels like, all right, I got I got like, I have to fight for my life here. And so it's not about, but it's still trying to do some insidious stuff, which is why we have the ending, right? You don't know if Childs or McCready was infected at some point. So it's still playing a shadow game, but it's also like trying to do a big heavy resistance. Like I tried to get out. Wilford Brimley's character almost built that spaceship to fly away. Like it's working on so many individual plans. They all get shut down at once. And so I think it, it feels like it has to go on the offensive. That's why I don't think it really breaks its rules. I think it's 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 surviving in a different way than we've seen it survive thus far. That's what I think. But then also leads to like if it could go that big, like why wasn't it doing that for like most of the time, just like causing well, havoc? It was outnumbered, or it had more adversaries than it could. I, I think mean, that's if it's if it's able at the to end. Like, if it's able to go all Bugs Bunny and make like the floorboards and the floor like you know pop up and stuff, like why they could have done that before. No, because it had to, it was combining multiple piece, pieces of people and animals, right? That's how it got that final form of like the weird like thing on the side of the guy's head with the mouth. Like it was combining matter because it, it, that's the thing about the thing is it seems like it's twisting matter that it's given. It can't make new matter. It's just like pulling it together in different pieces. So at the end, it has a ton of different matter because it's connected to a ton of different people or things. Um, that enable it to do this. And it wouldn't want to do it at the first place because it's way harder. This is All way right, harder. So, so that makes sense. So I mean, what? It, so at the it, end, it it's one person, the doctor, it takes control of two more people. It gets that mass and it's able to do weird things with it. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it's got the cells and it didn't have the cells at first, right? It was like, it was weak. It was little. That's that why it has to work its way up from like dogs to dog monster. At least that's, yeah, at least that's cohesive in some way. Uh. There's, yeah. there's rudimentary math that you can do, I think, is, is all the movie's trying to show you. Um, I will say um, the one thing you mentioned earlier, Vito, about it like blasting through the roof and then blasting through walls occasionally, that did annoy me because I was like, this this was like before in the in the original, it felt confined. It felt like you could trap it in a room. It felt like there were ways that you could like you know, contain this thing. And in this one, it's kind of randomly extremely strong or insanely, you know, agile. Mm -hmm. And then other times it's just kind of sitting there. And it was like, it was, it was random. It felt very random. And according to what the plot needed to do, like, like, like when the, when the two face monster comes into being right. Um, when the (laughs) one monster, like takes like 10 seconds, but then (laughs) the other guy who gets the arm on his face, like the face hugger, he just sits there for the entirety of the encounter and then just gets burned at the end. Yeah. 
Like, if you're going to tell me that it takes a little bit to absorb, I understand that. But then how did this guy, like, just meld two people instantly? Uh, and then yeah. runs away as, like, a man spider. Which is, like, a cool visual, but... But also, but also I thought that was lame, because my vision of the first one was, like, oh, it was trying to morph into somebody else at the same time. Yeah, and it got caught. And, yeah, yeah and, it, and they burned it in, like, mid-transition. Not like it was a two-headed monster. Right! Yeah. Right, that just almost seems like like if we're talking about it, uh, if if the thing. So obviously, in 1982, John Carpenter could never have meant to to have this be an allegory for AIDS, right? Which it, which it can be read as. It can also sure. be read as an allegory for like you know communism or whatever. Yeah. Um, but if it's going to act like a cancer or a virus or a oh. disease, something really strong, then it's about um, it's about advantage. It's about survival. It's not about you know flashiness or planning ahead. You know, this is a second by second decisions. These thing, this thing is making. It has an intelligence, but it's a feral kind of intelligence, right? Like a disease, and I, and I think that 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 is forgotten in the 2011 one, where it's like I am now a man spider. And like that's the least useful thing you could be. <laughs> why didn't? Why aren't you a? Why aren't you a dog spider? That would be better. You would be stronger and have teeth. Why are yeah. you a man spider? I don't. I don't understand. Or like the lady whose chest turns into the jaws, you know, I, I don't understand. I just, the, the internal logic of that 2011 one really breaks down for me. I'm sorry. It is, it is fun. I will admit it is fun in its beginnings. Also the helicopter crash, like really got me in the 2011. I mean, you know what? I'm going to stop bashing the 2011. <laughs> but like, the fact that the two people that weren't things survived and the thing doesn't survive, that doesn't happen. Exactly. Like, oh, they both were things? What? <laughs> um, Wait a second. <laughs> something really special I did want to mention about the original thing that before we kind of get into um, talking about a few other things, but is <laughs> that Rob Rob Bottin, who is this legendary um, special effects guy. Okay. Um, he's, he's uh, I'm actually going to pull up his, his IMDb really quick while we're talking. But this was one of his his first projects. He was 21 and 22 years old oh, wow. when he created all these creatures. It's incredible. Um, he John Carpenter talks about how he just didn't sleep, and you could go wow. into the workshop at almost any time of day or night, and he would just be in there working on some aspect of this creature design. He it's said incredible. they like they they came up with so many different creatures they never used, and he's in there, you know, physically putting together uh, epoxy and putties and different plastics and spray painting trying to get these effects and using tubes and like, how are we going to do like in the, in the really horrifying dog sequence, you know, how are we going to do the tentacles that are going to shoot out from one dog into the other dog? How am I going to build that? Uh, and it's, it's incredible stuff. So he's, he's also worked on uh, RoboCop, Total Recall, uh, Seven. He's done stuff for even like Mr. Deeds and Fight Club. Uh-huh. He's worked on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Mission Impossible, Basic Instinct. Um, Inner Space, The Witches of Eastwick, uh, The Fog, Piranha. Like he's he's been around. He even worked on the original mm-hmm. Star Wars as an assistant makeup artist. It's a really incredible dude, um, Rob Bottin. His last credit is an uncredited special makeups effect on a Game of Thrones episode. Don't know where he's been. I just love the the the, the kind of garage aspect of this. Like, you're 21 years old. And John Carpenter comes to you, who's like this up and coming celebrated horror director. And he's like, I'm making a movie. It's called The Thing. Can you make some creatures? <laughs> what kind of creatures, John? 
You oh. gotta be gross. Yeah. Gross creatures. Just gross. Drippy creatures. <laughs> Slidey creatures. And you're like, all right. We need enough. some amniotic <laughs> sacs going on. <laughs> Definitely oh, some yeah. of that. Claws. Yeah. I have no um, idea how they did some of the scenes. Like, just throwing that out there, there are parts where things look alive, and I'm like, it's is it puppetry? Is it, like, sped up? I, I just have no idea. And I'm sure somewhere there's a wiki that would explain mm-hmm. it to me, but... I think that's part of the magic of it is like actually actually no there are some things that are more explainable but every effect has not been explained. It's not as if it's impossible to imagine how it was done. But a lot of it really is in in the minds of the the creative team. You know, this is this isn't really like a like a magician's trick where you can get another magician that can come on and tell you how he did it. People people can't really tell you how this stuff happened. How he did this stuff. This young genius like and I think that's what's so exciting about it is that you can't really explain it. How do you, how do you do that? I mean, like you can see the easiest probably effect to explain is when the head like leaves, right? And you see like the little rubber feet on the side, but it's clearly like on like a little RC car or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> and I love the little sound effects when it gets burnt. <laughs> but there's other stuff like the lengthening of the neck and the head slowly sliding. How did they do that? And every, like you see the little tendrils breaking and the goo shooting out. Like, yeah. That's so intricate. It's the stuff I, I geek out. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. No, no. Keep, keep going. I, that, that's exactly it's Like some sort of scenes. putty. Like, you know, how like. Yeah. I don't know. I guess yeah. if, if, I know. if you asked me to do it, I couldn't do it. Not possible. Maybe we can talk about. Uh, so I think we've compared and contrasted enough. I don't want to beat up on on director Matthijas. Matthijas. Von Heichnigen Jr. I cannot say his name. I don't want to beat up. I think it was a good try, though. Thank you. I I appreciate it. The 2011 one is really interesting because it's written by Eric Serer, who is also uh, Academy Award nominated screenplay writer for Arrival. Huh. Um. So maybe he just had to get out his yips on an Alien and Arrival movie that was about (laughs) hostile aliens before he could do a different one. And I mean, obviously, the original one stars uh, stars Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David in his first film appearance. Actually, he was a Broadway actor. Wait, which one's Keith David? The really angry one that ends up at the end with Kurt Russell. Oh yeah, 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 yeah right. We mentioned you the cinematography Childs? by Childs. Childs. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Also, we mentioned the cinematography by Dean Cundey, masterful cinematographer, but also music by Ennio Morricone, um, the legendary Ennio Morricone. Uh, who has composed some of the most legendary uh, compositions Compositions that we have in film, right? One of your favorite movies, Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like all of the... He does like spaghetti westerns and that sort of thing. And also... The Mission. Yeah. The Untouchables. Yeah. He's incredible. Uh, and I like, though, that if you listen to the theme and then you go look back and listen to any of John Carpenter's music, it's very clear... That Ennio Morricone just listened to John Carpenter's music and then just copied it. <laughs> well, I think they said in the Big Picture podcast that he actually wrote, like Ennio Morricone wrote a bunch of different types of music and offered it to John Carpenter, kind of, you know, which of these would you prefer? And he picked the one that sounded most like his other stuff. Yeah. His only um, note to Ennio Morricone was less notes. Less notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Like the theme. Be-de- Boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> That's awesome. There was probably like I, one. I was reading. 
I, I think it's interesting. I was reading something comparing this to like a spaghetti Western. Like there oh, yeah. is like a, a Western sort of quality to this, but like Western in the eighties or something yep. with, you know, the um, hard scrabble guys like facing down impossible odds. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, a, he's like helicopter pilot. It's like, he's got a cowboy hat. He's got a cowboy. I mean, he's got a cowboy <laughs> hat. He's drinking whiskey. He's like, don't fuck with me. Like I can do anything. <laughs> the only female voice heard in the film is, is the voice of the chess computer at the yeah. beginning that he dumps Throws whiskey it. in. Like, you know, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> Forever. Like, it's the first week of winter. I'm done with my only entertainment. It's like his yeah. first drink of the season. And he's like, that's enough. This is Cheat, sorry. bitch. <laughs> also, that voice was the voice of Adrienne Barbeau, who was John Carpenter's wife. Oh. Uh, and we, I would like. Have we ever had Kurt Russell on the show before? I do not believe that. No. No. Once I'm upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he shows up there. Man, the I, I love Kurt Russell. Like, I don't necessarily go out and seek his films, but every time he's in there, I'm like, you know, this is going to be a great time. I'm going to enjoy this guy. I think I love Kurt Russell movies prior to, like, 2008. I think that that's my cutoff. And that now I'm like, you're Santa Claus in the Christmas Chronicles. I'm not, I'm not watching that, you know? <laughs> See, I won't watch it, but if I see him in it, I'll be like, hey, Kurt Russell. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> did enjoy Tombstone too, guys. And Tombstone. Tombstone. Come and on. Tombstone. I'm sorry. We did forget Tombstone. Oh, yeah. What are, what are we saying? We totally had Kurt Russell. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. Um, Wilford Brimley is great. This is actually written by Bert, by uh, Bill Lancaster, who's Burt Lancaster's son, who died at the age of 49 way back when. Way too young. Um, he, he was also known for writing The Bad News Bears. Uh, hmm. And this is based on the short story "Who Goes There" by John W. Campbell Jr., which has been re-optioned by Bloomhouse Productions as of oh. 2020. So we might be seeing another one of these thingies coming down the pipeline at some point. Sorry, um, what does that mean? Re-optioned? Does that mean that they like took some sort of license out for it? Yeah, yeah when you option it, means that uh, you know you, you're optioning it with the intent of making something based on it. Okay. And this, but this, this who goes their story is also the basis for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's also the, the both of those, the Howard Hawks, and then the 1970s one of Donald Sutherland. It's also the basis for another one that kind of came out. This is a pretty popular idea, but most of it's linked back to this one short story. Isn't isn't there a, a movie that uh, John John Carpenter mentioned about? It's called like the Thing Who from Another Planet. From Another Planet. Right. Yeah, is that in the similar vein? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. To, to wrap up our discussion about these two things, I want to, I want to ask a general question and maybe we can just go around the horn here. So again, this was, this was intentioned a different way, but it's unintentionally turned into a really interesting contrast between the use of CGI computer generated images and practical effects. If we can just talk real quick about like, what is the charm of practical effects? Do they have a place in our modern world? And kind of what is what is it that CGI can give us, and maybe what is it lacking? Because I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm not gonna be like, well, things were better when it was all practical effects. No, no, it, it it wasn't. You know, it was much harder. It was much harder to do for every for every one thing. Um, you just had the one thing. Now you can do thirty different things, and some of them can be really great. But before you had to rely on like the creative genius of one dude and his collaborators to be able to do this. And now you have effects houses that can do all sorts of wonderful, amazing things. So it's not better 
now. It's not worse now. It's not better then or worse then. I just want to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each. Jesse, you've been you've been quiet for a little bit. What do you think? I guess the the strengths of a practical effects are I think they're mainly tied to how the actors interact with it. Like when they're opening up all of like uh, I don't know the giant sack and it's all like gooey and gross and they bring for I don't know is that a head is it like an egg I don't know what they what they have but they're like physically carrying it and they have like slime on them and they had to cut into it, uh, like like I felt more of a reaction towards that because the actors are showing more towards what they're doing, so I I think there's that like I I can feel that a little more. Um, I can I can understand what the actors are going through a little more with CGI. You can't really get that unless you're like a superb actor. But um, think of how many like bland MCU movies are also are where like nobody reacts to anything going on in a realistic manner. And uh, and I guess I felt that a little bit in 2011, where like I wasn't. It didn't feel like anybody was really reacting to like two faces morphing together because that's pretty nasty. That's really gross. I feel like I would be screaming a little bit. <laughs> um, and everybody here just doesn't, they didn't even care. Like, but when they see the head in the 80s, they're like, holy, you know. You gotta, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, you have to light that up as soon as you see it because that is disgusting. And uh, yeah, I felt that a little more. So I think that sort of, uh, um, yeah, that sort of experience that you're getting from the actors is, is totally lost with the CGI. Um, but CGI is also like, yeah, I don't know. Like, the thing is kind of crazier in in 2011 in some ways. Like, when her whole chest, like, bursts open. Like, I, I know you said that they did that with practical effects, too. But, like, I honestly can't envision how on, how on earth they would have pulled that off. That was that was weirder. It was, it was a little more insane, a little more twisted. Um I think you can just do more with CGI, period. But, um, but I guess I value the the reactions of the actors a little more. So unless you have per- superb actors, I don't really think it works. Especially if you're supposed to be grossed out by it. That's a good point. I, I, as a side note, I want to mention that guy who gets the two-faced thing happen to him. His name is Eric Christian Olsen. And you might recognize him from Community, where he plays Vaughn. In the first season, remember this? Yes, I do remember. And his boyfriend Vaughn. His boyfriend Vaughn. He's the hacky sack guy, and his nipples are weird. Yeah, Pierce, 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 you're a B. (laughs) You no good B. You're a GDB. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I think about Vaughn a lot. Yeah, same here. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really good point about CGI. Like CGI can can be kind of any anything your imagination can do, right? Um, It's not. It's not hampered by physics uh by the natural plane mm-hmm. um what do you think mike what, what are you thinking so i mean i i definitely agree with jesse that like the it, it impacts the actors like i you know funny enough i just recently watched eternals um mm. and uh, that's famous for being a movie where the director said why don't we film outside a few of these scenes yeah. and there's a lot of really great actors in eternals like almost all of them are I, I consider really good actors. Um, and uh, like, you can, all, you can definitely see like a difference in the way that they're sort of looking at things in the, in the world. It seems like mm-hmm. they're perceiving the same things we are. Yeah. Well, it's like they, they're able to like pick something on her, on the horizon to look at. 
you know, rather than just being like, well, there's a green screen that I guess they'll turn into something. So if, if so just, just so Angelina Jolie. So at this point in the film, you're going to be seeing a very large sort of larger than life giant in front of you. And I'd like to read you to react in sort of a mixture of fear and, and, and awe. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay. It's up to there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Action. Fear Action. and awe. Fear and awe. <laughs> uh, I don't <laughs> no, but cut. but so like cut. Cut. perfect, perfect. That's um, good. I I think that there's like an additional layer to it where it's like I feel like there's there's an importance to being restrained by practical like by reality in a certain way in like what you're doing. I've been thinking mm-hmm. about this question over the last like week and trying to very little, um, but a little bit. <laughs> I've been trying to think of like. I've thought about this a very tiny amount. What I, I've come I have, up with is. I have thought a little bit. About it. I've been thinking about like, like similar remakes or like movies where it's like Lord of the Rings. The first Lord of the Rings trilogy um, was done very much with Weta Workshop, where they made a lot of physical things, um, and it's also famous for having a ton of CGI as well. They right. did both, and they kind mm-hmm. of combined the two. And I think that for the most part, it still holds up today. There's parts of it where it, that looks a little bit like Neo in the Matrix sure. um, when mm-hmm. he's running around with like all the Agent Smiths and it's just a bad video game. Matrix Revolutions, point. the final yeah. fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, but for the most then part, there's looks- a Hobbit where Ian McKellen was crying at a table full of dwarves and hobbits <laughs> saying this is not how actors should, should be doing scenes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, it's just, it's totally bullcrap at at that point. It's just like, just green screen. Um, Whereas like, I remember like watching like all that stuff about, you know, the return of or the fellowship of the ring where they're like, they have to make these duplicate sets and like, they're doing all this crazy stuff with camera work and they're physically like putting this stuff together. That's really amazing. Like, like it's something that I'm filled with awe when I watched, like someone actually took the time to do this and you could do this. All it takes is time and attention. Whereas like, you know, with CGI, it's like, Oh, you got to push the buttons and it's there. There's a skill involved. And I don't mean to say like anything negative about people who do that, but I think that there's something that comes through the camera, both with the actors and with just what you're actually seeing with like true, like real practical effects um, that makes it much more real. It slows things down. In the movie, like every time, I, I I can't think of a time when it does it. And you're like, wow! Like in the original Star Wars, they actually created these models and they like blew shit up, and like that's really cool. I, I'm a big big fan of practical effects. I can't think of a, a single time when it's like made it better when they moved it to CGI. But I also have a very limited memory, so I don't know. I, I'm wondering, like, do you have an example of that? Or like, I mean, I think you already provided one. I think you provided Lord of the Rings, like the the scale of, for instance, like the Helm's Deep. It's true. Yeah. You know, what, what what CGI was able to give us was a sense of of mm-hmm. scale that we had not really been able to do. Like we'd have we'd have amazing sets for like Braveheart, right, or Gladiator. Although there's a fair amount of CGI in Gladiator. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, just more basic and at a distance, so you can't really tell that's what's going on. Um. It, but it looks a lot different than than Spartacus, you know? Yeah. And Spartacus still felt big, or like you want to talk about the old Cecil B. DeMille epics, like the Ten Commandments, or you want to talk about the greatest story ever told or whatever. Um, lots of extras can can be impressive in a giant set. 
You know, we have con- we have taken over an entire studio and made a city and we have staffed it with 5,000 people. And that's pretty cool. But even there, they're like, they have paintings. Exactly. Like they use matte paintings, paintings in the background, in the background yeah. to, to mm-hmm. give you depth of field. And really, there's no difference between a matte painting and a CGI background, except that one actually looks more convincing than the other. And I, by that, I mean the CGI background. Yeah. Like your eye, because you're, so many details are there to focus on, your eye will not perceive that until, you know, like the fifth mm-hmm. or sixth evening. When, you, when your eye is actively kind of around the screen looking for something. Or like, um, let's, use, let's use a current example um, that I thought, like Minority Report, could not have been possible without CGI. I think, I think it's yeah. pretty incredible. I know Jesse's kind of out on it, so I should, probably should have picked a better one. Um, even the recent Mission Impossibles, like the fact that Tom Cruise is doing all this crazy stunt work is really helpful, but I mean, not everything he's doing is real. Or yeah. like yeah. the fast... No, that's that's a very good <laughs> argument against CGI. Serious <laughs> 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 movies. A, a good one is David Fincher. He uses a mm. ton of CGI in his movies, and people don't even know it. Yeah, like he'll have an point. entire scene where the cars and the background and the houses all around the set were CGI, and nobody knows it. And then talked afterwards. About yeah, in Zodiac, there's like whole, like it was just one piece of it was real. Everything else was CGI and you can't tell. You just like, can't like, tell. Like, yeah, the, the, honestly, the, I, I think I'll say that anytime in C, like CGI can and probably should be used anytime the actors don't actually have to be like odd or inspired or have to react to something. But if it's like background stuff, make it CGI. Like, I don't think anybody's going to mind. Or no, like in, in Zodiac, again, the, the the memorable scene when we're, the camera is directly above the taxi before the taxi cab driver gets murdered, all CGI, completely CGI. Um, and then the scene where they're investigating that very murder and Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards are standing on the street, you know, trying to divvy up the crime scene. The entire background is CGI. The entire yeah. thing, it's green screen that they set up. Um, all the buildings around them are fake because it needed to look period appropriate. So it, it is doing great things. But to your point, Mike, practical effects make me feel cozy. They make me buy into this world because like Jesse was saying, like everyone, like no one is in disagreement about when the actors believe they're in a real world, they'll act more real. Right. And like in Lord of the Rings, when you build a set and you dress everyone up in their garb and you have them standing around holding their props, they're like, wow, like this feels like Middle Earth. Like I can actually sink into being merry. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there just has to be, there has to be a push back, I think. I think we've just gotten too reliant. There's that recent brilliant expose that came out. I think it was for Vulture about one of the effects houses, one of the one of the effects workers, visual effects artists for an effects house that Marvel employees kind of came out and gave an anonymous tell-all about what it's like working um, in the kind of the quote-unquote salt mines. Mm-hmm. Um and how you know how Marvel takes inexperienced directors and places them here because they're easy to control, they're easy to boss around. It's actually a nightmare for the effects houses because they have an inexperienced guy who's like, "Show me the scene fully rendered," and the effects house is like, "Dude, that's like three months of work to get you to show you something to see whether you like it. Like that's insanity. How are we going to do that?" Yeah. But then because Marvel is so powerful, they make every contractor come in at the lowest possible bid. So you have tiny effects houses working for almost no money just to get a bid to work on a Marvel movie. 
Um, it's a terrible industry and it's actually causing long lasting repercussions. Like there's so many effects houses now, but they're all under such crushing demand from so many studios. That's why our movies keep getting pushed. That's another reason why even stuff like video game development has been pushed so far out. Things keep getting delayed is that we are running out of visual effects and game design artists who know how to yeah. make these things. And probably a- people that want to even start doing that. Like who want who wants to redo all of Sonic? Yeah, make sure his eyes don't look so creepy. You will be working eighty hour weeks with no overtime. And, and, and it's why, you, yeah, go ahead. And if and if you leave the project before the project is finished, you have written into your employment clause. You can't say you even worked on this project. So you got to stay and suffer through so that you get this credit on your resume. Otherwise, what was it all for? Yeah, and, and it's why you you notice like the passion projects, things where money is not maybe the first goal or the corporate, you know, capitalism is not the driving force. Those often look incredible. Like you'll see some artsy short film and you're like, this is, this is it. Like, why doesn't every Marvel scene look this good? Or why is it that this random video game that some guy in his basement spent nine months making why does that look better than this other, you know, massive like Ubisoft game or, you know, whatever it's like, it's because it's because of what you described where the money is like lowest common denominator, lowest bidder. Like it's a totally upside down industry. It's, it's commodified. Really strange. Like, like the art, the Ooh. digital art has now been commodified in yeah. such a specific way that they can get what is called a triple a kind of certification for bottom level money. And that's what we see in some of the in some of our big budget projects when we get this big fight scenes where it does just look like rubber dolls smack at each other. It's because another thing in that expose, I really should try and link it to this this episode, is that they mentioned that a lot of the, the final fight scenes in some of these big Marvel movies um, are pre-vised and animated prior to a director coming on board to the project. Really? It's just Crazy. dictated. This is what it's going to be. So start working on it now because this is the biggest. Get us to the fight scene. Get us to the fight scene. Make the fight scene. You know, and then when he comes in, he can like have some minor tweaks. But basically, oh, this scene exists outside of the director's vision. Wow. Wow. Or right, that really makes Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings make way more sense. Because once the fight scene starts, you're like, oh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> this <laughs> is like inter- really generic. It looks the floor different. is very clearly CGI. Why is the floor CGI? Yeah, it is. It's a really strange way of doing business, and I really hope that it ends. Um, but yeah. I think, I think we've talked. I, I don't think we've come down. I'm I, not demonizing well, CGI. It's a I beautiful, guess, beautiful yeah. thing. One last There's thing. a Luddite in me so, that wants to demonize it and wants to be like, <laughs> "Oh, hey, like we should just go back to the days before, like we had paintings that we could put in the bed. We should have yeah. like." Like we shouldn't have massive vistas. There should be murders on camera. (laughs) That's what we need to do. We shouldn't even have cameras. We should be going to see Punch and Judy things in the street. That was real. You know what? Get rid of the puppets. It's actually Punch and actually Judy. (laughs) No, one last one last thing referencing to the whole CGI thing is Ryan George on his YouTube channel. I think he does this. This like what it takes to be a CGI artist comedy sketch. It's pretty funny. You should look it up. It's just a guy in his tiny, dirty apartment, like working 80 hour weeks, like working on crotches and stuff. 
Um, <laughs> pretty great. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say in regards to CGI, other than like I, I don't know. Like it seems like just a lot of crotches. <laughs> so many crotches. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just too overused. It, I think filmmakers tend to get lazier when when they're using it um, instead of. Because it seems like I don't maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the camera used to work different back in the day by necessity. Um, it's like sometimes creativity is found more in the constraints that you have and trying to pull something off rather than just being given the ultimate freedom. That's a great. I mean, like any movie you make on a green screen, you say, "Oh, we'll fix it in post," right? We'll fix it in post. That's what we say on this show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, fix it in pre. <laughs> I mean, fix that's, it before okay. you need to fix it. Like the examples we've given, Jurassic Park, the original, and Lord of the Rings, they approached it as let's do as much practical as we can and as many miniatures as we can. And then we'll like we'll do CGI as kind of a last resort or if we can't do anything else. And those are huge successes, right? Everybody agrees, like the CGI in Jurassic Park holds up to today and same with Lord of the Rings, even though, yeah, it doesn't look as flashy or they didn't have as, you know, fancy as a tools and everything. It still looks great. It's believable. It, it's believable. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's grounded, right? It's grounded in reality. And that's what I think the people that are like 100% CGI forget is that it has to be grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to make something look real and practical effects are real, right? Yeah, they might not look 100%, but they're always going to be like 95% because they are real, right? It's going to look a little off, but it's, it's still real. And so mm-hmm. CGI is like more of, <laughs> it should be more like a cleanup tool. Like let's, let's get us that extra 5%. Let's not try to do the entire hundred percent CGI. Let's just like use CGI to add a little more, like clean up the edges. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was going to mention what there's a YouTube channel that I love called uh corridor crew where they, they do these like VFX artists react to a bunch of different scenes in, uh, in movies and in shows and everything. And they do a whole episode on the thing and the, the effects in there that I really like. They just recently did an episode where they uh, partnered with Adam Savage and they did mm. Um, mm. a scene from the guy from Mythbusters, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The white haired guy from Mythbusters. That's, that's just awesome. Um, and they, they redid a scene. I'm going to forget what, what scene it is. It's a scene where this guy has a switchblade in his nostril and it like gets sliced. Chinatown? Chinatown. Yes. Um, and they, they basically did like a competition where Adam Savage did it practically. And then they did it with CGI and they already knew the answer, which was, the best thing is if we combine our efforts and make mm-hmm. the scene with both. And they did that. And it was like, yeah, it's obvious that this is the best way. Um, so that's, that's like, that's the easiest answer is like, Oh, we'll use both. Um, I also want to say like, they, they talk about the new avatar trailer. There's a lot of like discussion about the, the, the VFX and that um, and how real they look. And there's actually like debates about what parts of the trailer are real and which ones are VFX. Cause <laughs> That's they kind of cool. They look so real. And it's the, like the water in there 
people are debating online right now about whether the water in there is real water or CGI water. And I think that's awesome. Like if we can't even tell the difference. Didn't they, didn't James Cameron sink Kate Winslet in water for like six minutes and she had to like hold her breath for six minutes to get some shots. I I remember, I remember like an interview on that. No, no, no. This is for avatar. Oh yeah. Wow. So it's real. Some of it. Some of it's real. <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah, that's the debate. But yeah, like certain scenes, right? They, like the CGI has gotten to a point. I don't want to say that it's like now it's, now it's reached a level of maturity. I think it's always going to be limited. It's always going to like yeah. need to be grounded in reality. And for um, $250 million, maybe you can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I am too. <laughs> I, I, I have I have one last thing to say about this is like I think we had we were hard pressed to come up with an example where where it seemed like CGI would have done better. Uh, but there was this one story I remember from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Quentin Tarantino was uh, given this example. Um, it's when uh, what Cliff, you know, Brad Pitt's character, he drives off to his home and he lives behind a theater and there's a bunch of cars parked right there. And they told him, like, we could do this with miniatures or we could like the cars with the theater with miniatures or we could do it in CGI. Um, and they're like, the CGI is going to be way cheaper. It's like, oh, let's just go with miniatures. It's like, well, but like they're like, you won't be able to really tell the difference. It's like a five second scene. It'll be a lot of work to put out all these miniatures and like create create this whole set. And he's like, "I'll oh, go with miniatures," but like at the end of the day, I think it would have looked fine in CGI. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagined Quentin like narrating that story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So okay. So I was given like they said miniatures CGI, right? Obviously, miniatures. <laughs> <laughs> Interspersed with like really loud laughter, and if you try and interrupt him, he'll just get louder and louder until you just shut up. <laughs> I feel like like one of the cool. And I think that the name of Tarantino is Tarantino is a little kid playing with toys, and so obviously he's going to choose yeah. the miniature cars. Like, and like Tarantino that's one of the cool things up, about old movies is little kids playing with toys. And he grew up with the thing, right? Like the mm-hmm. thing is. One thing about the thing is that it is a classic and a cult classic, but only amongst people that love film, like specifically love film. The average viewer, in my experience, nobody's seen the thing. Like nobody in my immediate circles or nobody that nobody that is a casual movie viewer has seen the thing or cares about it, or if they watched it, would like it. And yet everybody that is really into movies is really into the thing. And that's something so interesting to me. Um, I think it speaks to the, the level of expertise that it took to, to make it and, um, and how, yeah, like, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I, I think so. And I think it's, it's just one of those movies where unless you're like a real genre head, right. Um, you're not going to have a reason to watch the thing, except if you want to see how it's made. Right. Like you got to either be really into horror and sci-fi or you have to be really into just watching how movies are made to really even want to watch this movie. Right? Cause it's super gross. It's pretty violent. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, human characters that do things that are endearing. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of reasons why 
Yeah. Uh, for example, you would want to sit down and watch this as a date night movie, unless you're both already sold on something about the content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very approachable movie. It's not a very likable movie, honestly. It's not it's interested not in whether or not you like it. No, it doesn't really care what you think about it. And the ending really plays plays into that. Um, okay, I think oh, we need to wrap this up. But Jesse did have a question about the ending. I think that we must talk about the ending of the thing. Yeah. So at the end of this, I was like, I, I really wanted to know where everybody stands on on the ending. Uh, like, who is somebody the thing? Are neither of them the thing? Are both of them the thing? Does it matter? Um, and one thing that I was thinking about is that maybe it doesn't even matter if one of them is the thing. Because it seems like the nature of the thing is to be, like, divided and psychologically. So, um the thing wants to take other people and kind of like divide them into its own little bits and pieces and its own cells. Right. But it also tries to do that psychologically. So it's already kind of one at the end because they're divided against one another. And even if it freezes, it doesn't care about if it freezes, it won't die. It can freeze. It just can't burn. Freeze. Yeah. Yeah. Put, put me, put me into hibernation. Let's just wait till someone else finds me. It's okay. <laughs> I think that's the strongest argument for them. One of them or both of them being the thing is the fact that they mention like, we can't let this thing just hibernate. We can't just bury it in the snow and then die. That means that somebody's going to find it when they come looking for us. Like that means it what it wins. And um, yeah, I think it is it. Is I think it the only Kurt thing Russell's that we character? can say. Yeah. I think the only thing we can say definitively is it's not both of them. Well, that would be strange. You know, here's the only thing I can say in favor of the both of them argument. It seems like if if one of them, I think they both had the flamethrowers, right? Yep. If one of them knew for sure that they were not the thing, they could have just burned the other. But we don't know if you can know if you're not the thing. Right. That's not a we piece don't. of information that we have as an audience. Yeah, like in the scene where they're all sitting there, like trying to figure out who's the thing. Everyone's freaking out thinking that they might be the thing. Yeah. yeah. Or they're freaking out it. thinking that like... Or they're acting really well. You know, you don't... It's it's really hard to tell. Yeah. That's what's really beautiful about it. So another, another thing is that huh, um, <laughs> Carpenter has confirmed that there is tricks that he used with lights in the reflections in their eyes. Mm-hmm. If but there's also, no, McCre- I, you know, I, it was strange. I, I, I did go back and I did look at this, and McCready's eyes are not really glowing through most of the movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's <laughs> very are. strange. It's very strange, and it's also very strange that there is like literal evidence pointing to him maybe having yeah. been taken over by the thing. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah. So what, it's also like- very weird that he decides to kill the thing at the end. Like maybe. But maybe because the thing is so divided, it doesn't care if it kills like its other self. I don't know. Maybe it actually is at war with itself. Who knows? So that was his coat that they found, right? Yes. Yeah. How, how could it have gotten there? <laughs> because because there's a couple people that had access to McCready's cabin. Yeah. Who's, who's the guy with the silhouette in the very beginning? We're never given that explanation. Isn't that the dog guy? Uh, the dog guy they have, he has access to the thing like even earlier though. Yeah. For an, for an hour or two. And he, and he and is not cleared. a thing. 
Right, yeah, he's, he's cleared clear. with the blood test. Oh, that's weird. They yeah, just, he just wanted to be the, the the thing. Wanted to be the dogs. Yeah, Nelson McCready so, okay. was clear through the blood test too, but he's the one giving it. But it's clear it does work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but maybe yeah. it wasn't his. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, it wasn't, wasn't his, his blood. blood. Maybe he didn't heat it up enough. I don't know. So let's let, let's do this. Let's do this. So let's return back to the ending. I don't think it's both. I think it's one or the other, but I definitely think it's one. I think mm. that for it to be neither is needlessly hopeless. I would like to believe it's one is where I'm at. Where, where, where are you at? I think it's got to be one of them. Yeah. One of them has to not be the thing. Right. Yeah. And I'm inclined what? to think that it's McCready mm. that isn't the thing. I mean, I would like to think that. I'm inclined to think that because, yeah. like, why else would he have, like, like, if he was the thing, then he was destroying himself several times throughout the movie. To make sure that From the point he, he would have turned. To make sure that he, the ultimate thing, would definitely survive. I suppose that's yeah. possible. I mean, maybe he's playing the long game. Yeah, but how smart chess. is the thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, what if, what if the thing operates in the same way they're all operating with each other throughout the whole movie? Where the fit. So, like, well, we talked about, like, how John Carpenter is actually maybe more of an optimist than he seems. And maybe the more optimistic approach is the thing is actually at war with itself. It's poisoning everybody psychologically the way it itself is already poisoned. It's always at war. Like, people are sick, right? When when they at least some some guy is actually sick when he's the thing, and that's why they do the mm-hmm. um, the CPR thing or whatever. Um, but like, how on earth could that have happened? Unless, but his body wasn't functioning properly because the thing's not really working. Doesn't actually want to be attached to itself. Mm. So maybe that, it's depressed or- and it needs therapy. In that case, it should it should have let the defibrillator hit it. Electroshock, you know. <laughs> um, no, or maybe like the thing looks down on other things that are not as sneaky as it, right? Like if a thing outs itself, maybe that means everything in that vicinity turns on it, right? Oh. Like you are endangering all of us by getting loud. Like we will have to put you down just like everyone else so that we, we seem clear. I don't know. I think I John know. Carpenter would be like very not amused by this conversation. John <laughs> Carpenter, like, I, I think he said he did know. <laughs> He's oh, not okay. tell anybody. He did have something in mind. Yeah, I think he knows. So he just like sits down in his house, like in his mansion. Every once in a while, turns on the thing. He gets to the end. He's like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wonders how this is. It's like, no. Uh, it's so no. easy. I know it. It's just like so a Christopher obvious. Nolan has the extended cut of Inception that's 10 seconds longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does he I really? Have. I. If I was Christopher Nolan, I totally <laughs> would. <Yeah>. That asshole. <laughs> Oppenheimer looks really great. Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm yeah. hoping. Yeah. Um, we were just yeah, yeah. Never mind. Well, okay, gentlemen. Um, we gotta call a stop to this birthday episode. We've run over, but I'm very happy that on this one we did decide to run over. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Thank you for watching it. Thank you for talking about it. I appreciate your guys' time and attention, as always. Great birthday present to me. That time and attention. I appreciate you all. Thanks all right. for choosing these movies. Yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everyone. Uh, From all of us at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. I'm Jesse.